Do you remember Tank Man? The man that wandered out June 5th, 1989, and stood before the Chinese tanks headed into Tiananmen Square. This man was willing to set his life aside to stop the killing of the Chinese college students that were protesting the abuse, the repressiveness, the oppression of the Chinese Communist government. My students this week met Tank Man as we talked about the protest in Iran going on this week. At least 20 people killed there. The latest report is that thousands have been arrested. At least 450 have confirmed to me. We, we talked about Iran. But you see, there are people all around this world who live in bondage, who live in slavery of some sort. And it's hard for us to imagine because we live in such a free country. But slavery exists in many forms in this world today. But we've lived in slavery. We have lived in slavery and bondage to sin. And yet we have been set free not by someone willing to go and stand before some tanks, but someone who is willing to actually die for our sins. And that person is Jesus Christ. This morning, I want us to think about the imagery of being freed from bondage, being freed from slavery. And think about what that means for us as Christians being free from the bondage of sin. I want us to look at the parallel and the analogy of being free from bondage of slavery in Egypt to the slavery of sin. And so we're going to begin this morning by looking at Egypt and Israel's bondage in Egypt and how God used his power and the blood of a lamb to free Israel from bondage in Egypt. And I want us to think about how God used the real blood of the lamb to free us from bondage to sin. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning uh, to the book of Exodus. And you know, as you turn to the book of Exodus, that the last few chapters uh, of Genesis talk about how God was fulfilling His plan, His purpose of sending great descendants to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, by having the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, 48 of them or so, their wives, their children along with them, down into Egypt. But in Egypt they would become enslaved. For a period of time there were Egyptians that, that uh, loved the Israelites, they enjoyed the Israelites, but then somebody new came to power and began to enslave the sons of Israel as they lived in Egypt. Notice how this begins. Exodus 1, verse 8. It says, And there was a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. 
So they appointed taskmasters over them and afflicted to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pythium, Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to do labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter and hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the fields, all their labors which they rigorously opposed on them. And so Israel becomes enslaved to Egypt. And a number of years go by. God had told Abraham, your descendants are going to go to a land that's not theirs. Well, they will be oppressed and enslaved for 400 years. And so we're talking about generations in which the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and made to work hard and to labor rigorously in Egypt. And finally, God remembered the sons of Israel in Egypt. And he sends Moses to go to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who considered himself to be raw, the Egyptian sun god in the flesh. And he said, I want you, Moses, to go to Ra. I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And of course, he's not going to listen to you. But this is part of my plan, to show my power and authority over the gods of Egypt. And so Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus 12, we have these plagues, a series of plagues that God sends on Egypt. And of course, each of these plagues, we look at these plagues and we think, oh, well, that, that, that's strange, flies, gnats, blood, uh, hell coming down to destroy crops, boils on animals. Uh, we look at those plagues and we think, those are horrible plagues. I'm glad they don't happen to me. But each of those plagues represents God's power over a different Egyptian deity. Plague of frogs, for instance, displays God's power over the Egyptian god Het, H-E-K-T, which was the frog god. And so this is God displaying his power, his authority over these gods. But this happens, and finally God says, you know what? Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him that the last plague that I'm going to send is going to be the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, including Pharaoh, your firstborn son. Now, remember, Pharaoh thinks that he is Ra, the incarnation of the sun god, the chief god of the Egyptians. And his firstborn son is, guess what? set to inherit the position of being raw on earth, the sun god on earth. So when God first makes it become total blackness in Egypt, he's not just making it black to scare people with darkness. He's showing his power over the sun god. But now he's going to take it one step further. Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, the firstborn son, including yours, of those who live in Egypt, will die. Notice how he spells this out. Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, 
about midnight I'm going into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as there will never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so God makes this happen. But before he does, he tells the sons of Israel, I want you to prepare. And the way that you're going to prepare is you're going to take the blood of a, of a lamb that has been sacrificed, and you're going to take that blood, and you're going to wipe it on the door frames of your houses, Israelites. And everyone that's in the house that's eating that Passover lamb is going to live. As long as they're in that house where the blood of the lamb covers the doorpost. Notice this, chapter 12 and verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When you see, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You should take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside of his house, or outside of the door of his house, until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood of the, on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And of course, they institute this as something to be remembered throughout the generations, and this becomes the Passover. But you see, God was doing this to demonstrate his power over the gods of Egypt and his power to spare and to save the Israelites. Look at verse 12, chapter 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and, to ex and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, the one true God. All these other gods are false gods, but I am the one true God, and I alone can save you. And so, of course, the Israelites do this, and take, they, they take the Passover lamb, and they, they uh, take the blood of that lamb for each house, and they, they mark it on the doorpost, just as God has said. And in the meantime, God has said, I want you to go through the land, and I want you to, uh, to ask them for precious things, and they're going to give them to you. And you're going to be able to leave. And that's what happens. Chapter 11, God tells them, you're to ask for these precious things. Chapter 11, verse 2, now speak in the hearing of the people that each man may ask his neighbor and each woman uh, her neighbor for articles of silver, articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, 
The man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. And so they ask for these precious things as God has commanded them. And when that time finally comes, they're able to leave. Verse 33, Exodus chapter 12. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to all the word of, the, of Moses, for which they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have the request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, suggesting that maybe even some Egyptians went with them, along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had and brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since the day they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay nor had they provided, prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. God delivered Israel out of bondage of slavery in Egypt. Not only did he deliver them out of that slavery and that bondage in Egypt, but he brought them out in such a way that Egypt was destroyed in every way imaginable. Those plagues that God brought on Egypt destroyed their crops, destroyed their livestock, destroyed everything that existed in Egypt. And then God says, I want you to go to those folks and I want you to ask them to give you gold and silver and precious things. And they did that so that Israel plunders Egypt, just like God had told Abraham was going to happen in Genesis chapter 15. Your sons and your daughters are going to go to a land that's not theirs. They're going to be oppressed in those, uh, for 400 years. But afterwards, I'm going to judge that nation and destroy that nation and plunder that nation. And that's exactly what God does. but God brings them out. And the only thing that saves the Israelites is the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb that's put over the entrance to their lives. The door frames, the lintels. When God's angel sees the blood of the Lamb, he allows them to live. As Christians today, we have the blood of the Lamb on our hearts, on our minds. And it's the blood of the Lamb that allows us to escape bondage to sin and death. Notice how the Hebrew writer uses this, uses this language in Hebrews chapter 2. As we begin to think about the impact of the blood of Christ in our lives. Hebrews chapter 2.
the Hebrew writer says, but we do not, but we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that he, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For he both sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I proclaim your name to the brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since children share in the flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he also is able to become, or able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Did you notice what the Hebrew writer says there? Jesus went through all of this, and he did that on purpose. Verse 14, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Folks, because we fear death, because of the sin in our lives. We are slaves to death. We are slaves to sin. We are slaves to Satan. But you see, when Jesus rose up out of that tomb and he destroyed the power of Satan, he destroyed the power of the bondage to slavery that you and I were held by. And he destroyed it all by the blood of Christ. Jesus being the perfect lamb. Jesus being the lamb whose blood was shed for us. And so that's why Peter tells us, and Peter writes to us of the precious blood of the lamb. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in, in fear during your time, on the stay, uh, your time of stay on the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Did you see the slave language here? You might have missed it because it's not language that we use commonly. But in verse 18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. That word redeemed means to be purchased out of. Christ purchased us. And Peter says, he purchased us not with silver, not with gold, but something even more precious than that. And the thing by which we were purchased was the blood of Jesus. That was the price that had to be paid. That was the only price that could be paid to buy us out of slavery in our sins so that we have faith and hope in God. We have the hope of heaven because of the blood and sacrifice of Christ. Folks, we live in bondage. We live in slavery. Bondage and slavery to sin, to death, and to Satan. Unless we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And once we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, it becomes our obligation to live in glory, to live for Christ. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, if this is how you have been purchased, if this is how you have been redeemed, conduct yourselves accordingly. Live a life that is in accordance with that preciousness. You know, I grew up in the Northwest. And I remember the year that the state of Oregon said that if you drink a glass bottle of soda pop, you can take that bottle and you can redeem it and get a nickel. And we thought, that's pretty cool. Because before, you'd have to save your bottles, save your cans. You'd have to collect a whole bunch, but to get anything of substance. But if I can get a nickel back for every bottle of pop that I drink, that's not too bad. Nickel's not that big of a deal. It is when you're a little kid. But, but a nickel's not that big of a deal, right? I don't care if you've got two nickels to rub together. I want to know what kind of cash you got. A nickel's not that big of a deal. Folks, we weren't redeemed with nickels. We weren't redeemed with coins. We were redeemed with Christ, with the blood of Christ. Someone in it walked out in front of a hunk of metal to stop someone from squelching a protest. We were saved by God who is willing to take on the form of a human being to endure and go through a life on this earth just like you and I do, to face every temptation, to face every trial, to see humanity at its worst, and to live sinless for the express purpose of being a spotless lamb who could be sacrificed that there could be blood on our hearts, blood on our minds, that we could live forever with God. Are you willing to live your life 
because of the preciousness of the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and you need to be washed by the blood of the Lamb, or maybe you have other concerns that you need the church to be aware of, whatever your needs, won't you come? Together we stand and sing.